Okay, our section of the Bible for this morning is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. And that's actually there for you, right on the back of your handout, if you don't have access to a Bible this morning. As a church, we've been studying this letter that we call 1 Thessalonians uh, that was written about the year A.D. 50 or so to a group of brand new Christians. It was a new church in the city of Thessalonica, which is like up in modern-day Greece. And these were people that had only become Christians in just the last few, the last year probably, maybe just the last few months actually. And what had happened was there was this little team of Christians who had, led by the Apostle Paul, who had come to their city told them about Jesus, people who had probably never heard of Jesus, told them about Jesus and his death and resurrection, and they believed in Jesus. They turned away from their Greek and Roman idols that they were worshiping, and they gave their lives to Jesus, and they started following, gathering together as followers of Jesus. But that made some people in town really upset, people who didn't want Christianity in town. And so they, for the safety of that team, they had to just kind of whisk them out of town quickly. And so all of a sudden, you had these brand new Christians who were on their own in a hostile place. And so Paul wrote them this letter to try to help them with, uh, to encourage them, to teach them, but then to try to help them with some things that they were struggling with. So in our section today, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, he's trying to help them with some very specific uh, fear or misunderstanding that they had. But the specific help that he gives them here is based on some big truths that he'd already taught them. So next Sunday, we're actually going to consider the, like the specific point he's making about their fear or misunderstanding. Today, we're just going to make sure we know the big truths. Because if you look at uh, the beginning of the verses here, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware. So if we just pause right there, you can see why like, they already knew those things, but we, we want to make sure we know those things, that he's saying they already knew about this. So, The way I picture what we're doing this morning is it's like we've got a puzzle and the pieces are upside down, and so we're going to turn the pieces right side up today, and then next Sunday we'll we'll put them together in the passage. And so we could call this how to get ready for the end of the world because that's what these themes are about because verse 1 says, now concerning the times and the seasons. So the question is, what time is it? Just for my own curiosity's sake, how many of you are familiar with the doomsday clock? Is this familiar to some of you? A handful? Okay. So this, the doomsday clock supposedly predicts how close we are to the end of humanity. Um, and this is a, a serious endeavor that, that goes, dates back to the Cold War. Uh, these nuclear scientists who look at nuclear risks, climate change, biological threats, disruptive technologies, and then they make an annual proclamation, I guess, about how close we are to the end of civilization. And of course, they're not going to predict when civilization is going to end. They do it uh, figuratively with a clock. 
And the question is, how close are we to midnight if midnight's the end of the world one way or another? So in 1991, we were 17 minutes to midnight. And in 2019, we were two minutes to midnight. And now in 2024, they say we're 90 seconds away from midnight. In their words, we are, quote, the closest to global catastrophe that humanity has ever been. Now, I'm sure we all have our opinions about whether they're on target or wacko in what they're saying there. But it's very interesting that it doesn't matter whether you're like politically left or right or whether you're religious or very non-religious. Across the spectrum today, there's an undercurrent of very significant fear, though in different ways, about where we're at and what's coming like, I mean, in our, you know, in our national setting, is the U.S. going to survive the current anger and hostility of Americans against one another in an election year? Uh, how's this going to turn out? But then broader, are events in places like Ukraine and Gaza precursors of some sort of World War III? Two weeks ago, you probably saw the headlines. The intelligence community was talking about Russia and nuclear weapons in space. Um, of course, some people wonder if climate change is going to be our demise. Some people are making their plans to escape to Mars. So save your pennies so you can join them. Um, and then there's AI. A-, a Guardian UK headline said, five ways AI might destroy the world. A New York Times headline said, how could AI destroy humanity? And a CNN headline read, Sam Altman warns AI could kill us all. So... 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now, concerning the times and the seasons. The ancient readers, hearing those words, would have understood him to be referring to the end of the world. If the times and the seasons make us wonder if we're near the end of the world, then how should we get ready? But here's the thing. You don't have to think we're near the end of the world to still need to get ready because there is a clock ticking in your body. The end of you is coming. The end of all of us. And so the end of the world might be far away, but we are going to meet eternity sooner rather than later. So how can we be ready? Here's the first big truth we need to understand. Number one, understand that the final day of earthly civilization will be the day of the Lord. Verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So it's fine to keep your eye on what's going on with AI or climate change or nuclear weapons, and these are very important things. But the most important thing to keep your eye on is the day of the Lord because that's what will truly bring the world to an end, not that some of those other things might not be factors that play into it. But the final day of human civilization will be the day of the Lord. And we're not talking there about a single day, like a 24-hour day. The Bible uses the phrase day of the Lord to refer to many different periods of time from, from, from very brief to sometimes even years long. It's a period of time that belongs to the Lord, a day of the Lord. And the Bible says it's the day of the Lord that will bring the world as we know it to an end. So what will the day of the Lord be like? Number two, understand what it will be like. Look at verse 3, then, in 1 Thessalonians 5. While people are saying, there is peace and security, 
Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So we'll come back to some things there, but for now, just notice the word destruction. The day of the Lord will be a day of destruction. And to understand what kind of destruction we're talking about, we need to add one more word that you can see down in verse 9. And that is the word wrath. So we're not just talking about the destruction of AI robots or nuclear weapons. We're talking about the destruction that happens because the judge of all the earth comes in wrath to judge and sentence sinners to eternal punishment. Sin is damaging. It damages people. It damages God's creation. Most of all, it scorns God himself. Mankind's rebellion against God is the root cause of everything that's wrong with the world. And God is not okay with that. God is not okay with sin. And listen, that is good news. Let's step back for a second and see why. This is so important because when people hear a word like wrath, they think, oh, that's bad. God should never have wrath. And that is not true. Think about our our world today where we have lawmakers, law enforcement, a judicial system, and a penal system. We make laws, we enforce the laws, we judge lawbreakers, and we carry out the penalties for lawbreakers. And we really want those things to be done well. We want good lawmakers who will, think about this, they will be angry about stuff they ought to be angry about, like people doing evil to one another, and they will make laws against it, right? Isn't that the kind of lawmakers you want? Not lawmakers who are saying, hey, how could I make you a few hundred thousand bucks if we, if we change this law this way or that? But lawmakers who say, how can I protect people? How can we bless people with the laws that we make? We want good law enforcement, right? With the courage and the expertise to protect innocent people and stop and capture wrongdoers. And then we want a good justice system that protects the innocent but convicts wrongdoers and sentences them fairly. And then we want a good penal system that carries out the sentences. What good is it if we get all the way to the end of that, we make good laws, we have good law enforcement, we have good judges, and then when they get to prison, the prison guard says, nah, you can go, you're fine. All of us benefit when we have good people doing what is wise and right in all of those areas. All of us pay the price when we don't. And so the wrath of a good law, good law enforcement, a good judge, a good prison guard is good wrath. It is right anger. It's the kind of anger you would have if someone was about to do evil and harm and damage to your family and you were not going to let them. You would be angry. That is the right kind of anger that protects the innocent and upholds what is right with courage and with strength. And so when we talk about God's wrath, we are not talking about any kind of the wrong kinds of sinful anger, the ways that we are out of control and selfish and have all this terrible anger. We're talking about the goodness of a just, perfectly, a perfect heavenly lawgiver 
whose laws are perfectly good and right. And he will be the perfect law enforcement and judge. And he will perfectly carry out the fair sentences upon all sinners. Oh, that's why we don't like to hear about God's wrath. Because it has to do with us and we're afraid we might be on the wrong side of this. God will never just let people damage themselves or hurt others or rebel against Him. He will, he will deal with it. And that's good, except when we realize we're sinners. Now, another thing to know is that God is also patient. He says, Ezekiel 18, verse 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. The Bible says, the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, this explains what's going on in the world today. On one hand, God is the judge, and he's getting ready to come. It will be fierce destruction and just wrath on the day of the Lord. But on the other hand, God is patient, and he is leaving time for sinners to repent and to be saved before he comes. Now, Obviously, some people will mock and they will say, well, you Christians have been saying he was going to come for a long time and he hasn't come yet. Well, but to the mockers, the Bible says this. God says this. Don't overlook the fact that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. He is outside of time. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And the next words are, but the day of the Lord will come. A day is coming when there will be no more patience and no more chance for repentance, and that is the day of the Lord. A day of wrath and destruction. It's the perfect judges, perfect trial, and sentence against all evil. Now, God first started to tell humanity about this way back through the ancient Jewish prophets. He started talking about the day of the Lord. And the phrase, the day of the Lord, was used to describe any time when God just stepped directly into human history to bring judgment. So there were various, like, days of the Lord. But then the prophets also promised the great day of the Lord, a future day when worldwide judgment will will fall. So, for example, through a prophet named Obadiah, God said, The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. That's the kind of destruction we're talking about. Your deeds returning on your own head. God will bring full and final judgment on all of sinful humanity. Now, here's what's really interesting about this. After Jesus came to earth, died on the cross, rose again, returned to heaven, he promised that he would come again. He promised that he would come back to earth. And guess what the Bible calls the day when Jesus comes back to earth? It calls it the day of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? The day, the time period that will bring human history as we know it will be the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be the day when Jesus comes to earth again. He's King of kings, and he's Lord of lords. He's got all authority in heaven and on earth, and he's getting ready to come. 
So the great day of judgment that the prophets foretold will be the day of the return of Jesus to earth. But wait a second. That means this is Jesus we're talking about who comes on the day of the Lord. And so it's not a surprise to find out that even though the ancient prophets talked about the day of the Lord as the day of destruction and great wrath and the great trial of humanity, the ancient prophets also talked about the day of the Lord as the beginning of the most awesome day ever. Isn't that interesting? The beginning of the age of great blessing. The day of the Lord will not just be the end of this earth as we know it, it will also be the beginning of the, the age to come which is what most people often refer to as heaven. So actually, the day of the Lord is like a hinge from this broken age we're living in today to the perfect eternal age that Jesus is preparing. There can be no heaven, no eternal joy and peace until all sin and sinners have had their day in court and been fully dealt with. So, how can you get ready for the end of the world First of all, understand that it will be the day of the Lord. And second of all, understand that it will be a day of destruction and wrath against all sin and sinners, though that will be the hinge into the age to come. Number three, understand when the day of the Lord will come. Okay, do you have your calendars out? We need to know when this is going to happen. This is so serious, we've got to know when so we can be ready. But the Bible tells us that we can't know exactly when this is going to happen. Jesus said to his followers, his closest followers, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Now, there are signs that help us see it's getting closer. The Bible tells us to be watching and alert, and yet in the end, we cannot know for sure. No one will know for sure. So if you look back in our text, let's just start over in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. At the end of pregnancy, You know that labor is inevitably coming, but you don't know exactly when. So the day of the Lord is inevitably coming, but we don't know exactly when. It comes like a thief in the night. It comes as sudden destruction. It comes when people are saying peace and security. It's interesting, the archaeologists have found those two words all over the evidence from the ancient Roman Empire. It's on monuments, it's on inscriptions, it's on coins, it's in literature, and even people who were not fond of the Roman Empire had to admit that they brought a lot of peace and security. And governments love to tell their people right that, like that, that right? Like every, every U.S. political party that's in power takes every headline, whether it's about inflation or whatever, and they turn it to, to say, look how great we are. <laughs> look how great job we're doing. You're okay. Everything's good. But the day is coming when people will think that they have peace and security and nothing to worry about, and suddenly the destruction of the day of the Lord will come. And as the end of verse 3 says, they will not escape. Nobody gets to say, Oh, sorry, Jesus, I need 10 minutes real quick to get ready. 
There's no 10 minutes to get ready. When he comes, there will be no escape. And so it's essential that we get ready. But what we're realizing is we can't get ready by knowing the exact time. You're not going to get ready by putting it in your calendar and saying, you know, like, like you know, students with an exam, okay, that exam is six weeks from now. I'll put that in my calendar so that at 10 p.m. the night before, I can get ready. You don't get to do that with the return of Jesus. You can get ready, but you have to get ready now because you don't know when. So let's read verses 4 through 7 now. And these verses are written to Christians. So these verses are going to say, don't worry, you're ready. Because he's reassuring people who he knows are followers of Jesus. But what I want us to watch for is the different illustrations of those who aren't ready. Verse 4, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. So there we have several illustrations about people who aren't getting ready for the day of the Lord. It's like they're in the darkness. They can't see what's happening. It's like they're spiritually asleep, so they're not conscious of what's happening. It's like they're spiritually drunk. They're just loving the things of this life, and they're just not at all concerned about eternity. And the day of the Lord will surprise them, and they will not escape. So every one of us needs to make sure we take action to be ready. That's number four. Take action to be ready. Since we don't know when the day of the Lord will come, the time to get ready is right now. But how could you possibly get yourself ready to face Jesus? This is not like getting ready to go out for dinner. How do you get ready for this? How do you ever get ready for the day of the Lord? I hope you're asking that question. I hope you're feeling the impossibility of that. Because this is when the bad news meets the good news. The incredibly good news is that God himself has done everything needed to get us ready for the day of the Lord. So that rather than being bad news for us, we can even look forward to the day of the Lord because of what God has done. God has done everything, and all we have to do is listen to him and humbly receive the truth, receive what he has done for us. So first of all, wake up. Verse 6 says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So first of all, we've got to wake up. What does that mean? It means we have to be paying attention, seeing what's going on. What does that mean? It means we have to be listening to what God says because only God knows what's going on. God's truth is light. One Bible writer says, God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Every word of God proves true. There's a proverb that says, do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So we wake up by stopping our trust in our own wisdom, our own ability to see what's going on, and saying, wait a second, I ought to be listening to God. He would know. And more specifically, that means listening to Jesus and learning about Jesus and following Jesus through the Bible because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's crazy, because that's the same Jesus who's going to come again and bring the day of the Lord. The same Jesus who comes like a thief in the night promises that whoever follows him never walks in darkness, but has the light of life. Isn't that awesome? So first of all, to be ready for the end of the world, wake up. Listen to God. Follow Jesus as the light of life. And then secondly, we must obtain salvation. Verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking to the Christians in Thessalonica when he says, God hasn't destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. What an amazing truth that there is salvation to obtain. God didn't have to do that. God didn't have to make salvation available to sinners like us, but he did. How did he do it? The end of verse 9 tells us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So salvation is only through Jesus because, as verse 10 says, he's the one who died for us. Do you know what the words for us mean? It means that Jesus died in our place, the substitute for us, taking the sentence, the the verdict, the judgment, the penalty that we deserved, but he took it in our place. Remember, God is perfect. His laws are perfect. He will perfectly judge and sentence evildoers. And yet, who sent a Savior to take the judgment in our place? God did for us. He himself provided the the answer, the solution, the freedom, the ransom, the the Savior, the forgiveness. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for sins the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. When Jesus was on the cross, God the Father gave the guilty verdict for our sin to Jesus and then gave the sentence of death to Jesus. This isn't like necessarily technically correct, but you might think of it like this. It's like the day of the Lord fell upon Jesus. The destruction and wrath came upon Jesus. I say it's not technically correct because there's still a day of the Lord coming. I'm not saying the day of the Lord won't come because of that. But the destruction and wrath for the sin of every person who comes to follow Jesus as their Savior and Lord did fall upon Jesus on the cross. He took it. Why did Jesus do that? Verse 10 tells us, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, now that's an odd phrase, whether we are awake or asleep. The reason why he says that is because in the previous section of the letter, he was talking to them about whether they're going to be dead or alive when the day of the Lord happens, when Jesus comes again. So that's all he means here. He just means Jesus died for us so that whether we're dead or alive when the day of the Lord happens, what's the end of verse 10 say? We might live with him. That's why He died for you so that you might live with him. 
Remember, the day of the Lord is this hinge from this age to the age to come. Jesus took your destruction and wrath in your place so that you could live in the joys of the age to come with him forever rather than an eternal punishment for your sins. Jesus, after he died, rose from the grave so that death no longer has to define you. Now you've got this promise of resurrection to a perfect physical life. By the way, did you know there is so much historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus that over the last 2,000 years, thousands of books have been written, thousands of papers have been written, historians have worked and worked and worked to try to come up with what, how to explain all this evidence that Jesus rose again. Well, maybe the reason for all the evidence Jesus rose again is because Jesus rose again. And if Jesus rose again, then he is king and he is Lord and his promises that he will come again are true. So the hinge will come. Jesus will turn the door from this age to the next age. And in that age to come, there will be a perfect new heavens and new earth and Jesus' followers will have perfect resurrection bodies and God himself will dwell among us and we will be with all of the family of God from across all the centuries and we will worship the Lord and we will live in the joy of a brand new creation forever. And that's all possible because on the cross, the day the Lord fell upon Jesus for you so that you might live with him forever. So the thing with this is, while I say these truths, and these are the truths that that define Christianity, the truths of the Bible, you have to personally connect to these truths yourself. You you don't become a Christian. Uh, Think of it like this. He he says, um, like in verse 6, he says, you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. In verse 8, he says, but since we belong to the day, how do you become a person who belongs to the day? How do you become a child of light? How do you become a, uh, a resident of the age, to, a citizen of the age to come? Well, it's not by being born into a Christian family. It's not by attending Christian church. It's not even by saying, like, self-identifying as a Christian. You, you can only become a forgiven child of God with eternal life who belongs to the age to come by you personally believing that Jesus died and rose again for you personally. By you personally repenting of your sin and rebellion against God. By you personally turning to Jesus, asking Him to be your Savior, and just giving your life to Him as your, your King, your, your Lord. You've got to personally do that. And the time for that is today because we don't get to put in our calendar the day of the Lord, right? We don't know. So the time to be prepared is today. So how do you get ready for the end of the world? Wake up and obtain salvation. Now there's one other answer in the text and that is put on the armor. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So now the illustration switches to armor. So, you know, it just means this. The day of the Lord's coming, it's going to be crazy. Sudden destruction, judgment on all the nations, the wrath of God is coming. Armor sounds like a good idea. <laughs> if the world's going to fall apart. So what kind of armor could protect you in the day of the Lord? 
Verse 8 describes a breastplate and a helmet. Heart, lungs, brain, the very first things you want to protect if things are going to go down crazy. So what's the armor? It says the armor is faith, love, and the hope of salvation. Okay, first, faith. Faith refers to your faith in Jesus Christ. Believing that He died and rose again and is coming again. Believing that He died and rose again for you and is coming again for you. Believing that He's your only Savior, your Lord and King. Okay, so first part of the armor is faith. Second part of the armor is love. This includes love for God and love for others. Our heart doesn't naturally love God. We see Him as a threat because we want to be able to live however we want. We want freedom to do what we want. But then through Jesus, we see the truth, which is that God is amazing, that God is perfect in everything from His wisdom to His justice to His mercy to His generosity to His laws and His ways. And, incredibly, He loves us. And so, the armor of love means that we love God because He first loved us. But then it also means we've got to love others because God created humanity to live in love for one another. That is His will for all people to sacrificially, really unconditionally love one another. Love the people closest to you. The Bible talks about loving God's children and the church. But that love that God calls us to extends all the way out to our enemies. Jesus says. So, Love is an essential mark of a person who is in the light, a child of the age to come. So without, without that love for God and love for others, you're definitely not ready for Jesus to come again. And then the third part of the armor is the helmet of the hope of salvation. And the word hope in the Bible is not like wishful thinking, like I hope I'm going to win the lottery. It's the joyful confidence that God is going to keep his promises. God has forgiven me. God has given me eternal life. Jesus is going to come again for me. I have nothing to fear when Jesus comes again because God has not destined me for wrath but to obtain salvation. When you have that kind of confidence based on the word of God, then you've got the hope of salvation. It's an impermeable helmet. Without that helmet, you're on a head-on collision course with eternity and there's nothing to protect you. But once you have that armor, you're ready. The day of the Lord can happen anytime, and you're ready. Your life can end anytime, and you're ready. Because you're not spiritually asleep. You're not spiritually drunk. <laughs> you're not stumbling in the darkness. You've been saved. You've been forgiven. You're not destined for wrath any longer. For you, the day of the Lord is the beginning of eternal joy. So, at the bottom of your handout, you see a couple verses from the beginning of this letter where the author wrote this to these new Christians. He said to them, You turn to God from idols. Now, they had very literal idols to turn from. Our idols might not be statues on a shelf, but there are plenty of things that we can worship instead of God. That's what an idol is. Anything that we, we treat in the way God should be treated in our life. We love it. We live for it. We invest in it. We depend upon it in the ways that we should be loving and living for God. So he says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. See that? Turned to God to serve God. And 
to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So ask yourself this morning if that's you right there in those verses. Have you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God? And are you waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who will deliver you from the wrath to come? Have you ever said, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I'm a rebel in need of a king. So Jesus, I'm giving my whole life to you. He is a great savior for great sinners. Jesus is how you get ready for the end of the world.